We're taking a tiny break today from our topical series on the disciplines of grace to focus on just one passage. We're going to be looking at a model prayer for us from the Psalms. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on this time of Bible exposition. Lord, you are the great God. You do rule over all. Lord, we want to learn anew. We want to focus on anew on you as the king. The king who deserves worship and obedience and praise. So equip me, Lord, to be able to explain this now. And enable us, God, to hear and put into practice this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Pastor Bobby said, tomorrow is the 4th of July, and I was going to quiz you on what that was, but you all got the answer already. What does the 4th of July commemorate but the Declaration of Independence? It was the day that we officially declared independence from Great Britain. You could call it America's birthday. July 4th, 1776, Congress, the Continental Congress officially adopted this document, which we still revered today, the Declaration of Independence. And if you actually read through it, it's a not-so-long document that just announces and explains why the 13 colonies were separating from Great Britain and Great Britain's, at least in the colonists' mind, tyrannical king. This is why we're doing it. Now, America did not act perfectly in its beginning, and nor has America always acted righteously since then. But, even as Pastor Bobby said, over the years, the United States has proved to be a blessed land, and many times a blessing to the world. So it is appropriate for us tomorrow, July 4th, to take time to celebrate our nation's beginning, and to even give thanks to God for the grace he's shown us in this country and shown the world through this country over the past 246 years. But though we're celebrating July 4th tomorrow, I propose we have a different celebration today. And in many ways, this celebration will be the opposite of tomorrow's celebration. Tomorrow, we celebrate independence. Today, let's celebrate dependence. Tomorrow, we celebrate life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness under self-government. Tomorrow, or today, let's celebrate life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness under someone else's government. Tomorrow, we celebrate the rejection and removal of a bad king. Today, let's celebrate our reconciliation with and submission to a good king. For this is what our passage today invites us to do with him who is the king of kings, King Yahweh, our God. Please take your Bibles and open to Psalm 24. Psalm 24, this is page 564 in the Pew Bible. Psalm 24, the title of the message is, O Worship the King. O Worship the King. Psalm 24, we'll jump right in and read our passage. Starting with the title, A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's, or that is, the earth is Yahweh's. And all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of Yahweh? And who may stand in his holy place? 
he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. Before we go verse by verse through this text, let's notice a few overarching details. Notice the title. It appears before verse 1, and it says, A Psalm. What's a psalm? Well, that's a technical Hebrew word meaning a song sung to musical accompaniment. Which means that this passage we've just read isn't just instruction. It's music. It's a prayer song written in worship to and in celebration of God. And you can see some of the musical quality in the text. Notice that we twice have the word selah, I didn't read it, but it's there in the text. This is another technical Hebrew word, which we don't exactly know the meaning of, but we know it is musical. It means something like pause or get louder or musical interlude. See that twice. The writer apparently wanted the music to change in a dramatic way after verse 6 and after verse 10. You also may notice there are some question and answer sections in this psalm, like in verses 3 and 4 and verses 7 to 10. This may have been in Tended as a section of antiphony or call and response singing. One part sings something and then the other part answers. Antiphonal singing was a frequent feature of ancient music. Now, of course, we not only notice that this is a psalm, but that it appears in the book of Psalms. This is the 24th. Why is that significant? Well, because the book of Psalms is the divinely authored worship handbook. It's a collection of 150 prayer songs. It was given by the Spirit of God through human authors to the people of Israel and eventually to us to be prayed and sung back to God as worship. This psalm, then, is an authoritative worship model for us. It should not only inform our thinking and living, but even our singing and praying. Now, there are certain categories of psalms in the Bible. You have confession psalms, petition psalms, praise psalms. Psalm 24, and these categories do overlap to some degree, Psalm 24 fits into the category of royal song, even messianic song. And I don't think it takes very much thinking to see why, right? The emphasis on kingship in this passage. In fact... Though, Bible teachers often note how Psalm 24 fits into a trilogy of psalms with the two that came before it. Psalm 22, you might remember, is a psalm of Messiah's suffering on the cross. Very obviously messianic and royal. Psalm 23, of course, is that famous psalm about the Lord, even the Messiah, as the good shepherd. 
And then we have Psalm 24, a song celebrating the king and his arrival in triumphant glory. And there seems to be a poignant order in these three psalms. We have the suffering servant, the providing shepherd, and then the victorious king. Does that not seem to reflect what Messiah has done, is doing, and will do? Look again at the title for Psalm 24. We also see that this psalm is of David. That is to say, belonging to David. David wrote it. Now you remember David, one-time shepherd, chosen by God to be a courageous warrior, deliverer, even righteous king for Israel. David wasn't perfect, but as, as is very clear in the Bible, he was fundamentally devoted to Yahweh and loved to give him praise. He's called in one place the sweet psalmist of Israel. And that's a very apt name because he actually authored 75 of the Bible's 150 psalms. That's half of it. This is a man who's clearly delighted in worshiping God and wants to invite others in. And Psalm 24 is one example, one invitation towards that end. David gives us, God gives us by his spirit this psalm so that we too might delight in worshiping God as king. Now, can we discern anything about the historical occasion of this psalm? What led to its being written? We don't get any information, any more information from the title, but if you look what's spoken in the psalm, notice the psalm celebrates the arrival of King Yahweh into a certain city. Did something special like this ever happen in the life of David? Well, yes, certainly. In 2 Samuel 6, verses 12 to 23, also noted in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, we hear that David brought the ark of God's presence to Jerusalem, which was David's new capital city, and it was also the city that God chose in a special way to set his name and presence. So in a sense, God, Yahweh, came into the city. And the ark's arrival day was a day of great rejoicing and feasting. Second Samuel tells us that David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David likely wrote this psalm in preparation for that day or in commemoration of that day. But does this psalm only mark that one historical event? Or did David use the event to speak even about the future? Let's take a closer look at the psalm. The psalm divides grammatically and thematically into three sections. And so those will be the three main points of my sermon. Here's the main idea. In this psalm, David gives three reasons to celebrate King Yahweh and a life of holy worship. Three reasons for you and me this morning to celebrate King Yahweh and a life, a whole life of holy worship. Our first reason appears in verses 1 to 2. That's the first section. Number one, King Yahweh owns and rules all. King Yahweh owns and rules all. Look at verse 1 again. The earth is Yahweh's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. 
Now you see the word or the title, the Lord, in all capital letters in your Bible, probably, if you're using the New American Standard at least. What's that? Well, this is our English Bible's traditional way of designating the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. That's why I keep saying Yahweh instead of Lord, because that's what it really is in the original text. What's Yahweh? Yahweh is a reference to God's statement in Exodus 3.14, when he declared to Moses, for Moses to pass on to Israel, I am who I am. Therefore, Yahweh is a special name for God that highlights on the one hand his eternality, his holiness, his transcendence, not I was or I will be, I am. But also, on the other hand, it highlights God's faithfulness and his intimate covenant relationship with a chosen people, Israel. It was a name only given or only explained to them. So we see name Yahweh. But in English, verse 1 starts with, the earth is Yahweh's. But in the original Hebrew, the order is reversed. Yahweh's is the earth. You say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, certainly it's about emphasis. David wants Yahweh's name to be the thing that stands out. That's why he brings it to the beginning of the sentence. But there's also a parallel between the title and the beginning of verse 1. The title literally reads in Hebrew, Belonging to David, a psalm. Whereas verse 1 begins, Belonging to Yahweh, what? The earth and all it contains. And here's an allusion to the language of Genesis 1-2, the creation account there. David says that God owns both the formed planet and everything that fills it. Those are the two things that God was accomplishing in the creation narrative, forming the earth and filling it. Now line 2 of verse 1 provides a parallel to what we just heard, but it gets more specific. What else belongs to Yahweh, according to David? Well, the world, and that's a term for the dry land, especially its inhabited parts, and those who dwell in it, that is, the ones living on the dry land. Now, who lives on the dry land of the world? Some animals do, but mainly, we do. People do. So David is saying, Belonging to Yahweh is the earth and all that fills it, even the dry land and the people who live there. Or to say it even more concisely, everything on earth belongs to King Yahweh, even you. But how did God acquire this ownership? Who gave him the right to rule the world as king and everything in it? Well, he did. As verse 2 explains, look at verse 2. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Notice the word for. That's a transition word that indicates David is supplying a reason for what he just said, a reason why God owns everything. What's the reason? Well, God made the world. God created the world. You make something for yourself with your own resources, you own it. And that's what God did made the whole world by himself, for himself, and so it's his. Now, what's all this about seas and rivers and building on those things? 
Well, this is a poetic way to refer back again to the creation account how God made the world, even the land. Remember, the formless earth was covered with water. But then God separated the waters, and he brought the dry land up out of the water. He made the dry land appear. So if you were to look for the foundations, as it were, of the earth, of the land itself, well, you must look to the water. In fact, even today, where are the deepest places you can go on earth without digging into the ground? Underwater. And the main point of verse 2, don't miss it, is that God is the one who built the world. He's the one who founded it upon the seas and rivers. So only he has the right to rule it. But not only did God build it, he's also the ultimately, he's also ultimately the one who maintains it, keeps it going. And you can even see this in verse 2 in an interesting way. You see the word established in line 2 of verse 2. The word established is roughly equivalent to the word founded in line 1. They both refer to a sturdy and lasting setup. This is what God did for the world. But whereas founded is in the past tense in the original Hebrew, established is in the present tense. He establishes it upon the rivers. Now, many would say that this present tense thing was just a scribal typo, and we really shouldn't pay attention to it, just ignore it. It's past tense. But actually, while unexpected, I think establishes makes perfect sense. God not only originally founded the world, but he keeps it established. He keeps on establishing it so that it will not be shaken or lost without his say-so. After all, Hebrews 1.3 agrees when it says of Jesus Christ, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Clearly, if God is both the creator and sustainer of the world and everyone in it, he has full right to rule. And consider how such rule demonstrates the greatness of King Yahweh. We recognize that the greatness of any king corresponds to the value and extent of what he rules. You come along and say to me, I am the king of my room. Well, that may be true, but that doesn't make you very great. I mean, that's the extent of your dominion? One room? What's that? Or if you come along and say instead, I am the king of the country of Nauru. Okay, becoming a king is kind of impressive, but what's Nauru? If you look it up on Wikipedia, it's the third smallest country in the world. It's, eight, it's an eight-square-mile island in the Pacific. Ruling just a few square miles and a few thousand people, all right, that's something, but that doesn't make you a great king. If you came along and instead say, I have become the king of Germany or China or America. Well, I don't know how you would do that, but if you did, that'd be a pretty great kingship. I mean, that's a lot of land, that's a lot of people, that's a lot of value. Now, what about King Yahweh? who as the creator rules over every person, every place, and everything on the earth. 
and directs it all according to his own perfect, wise, loving will. That is an extremely valuable kingship. That is an overwhelmingly powerful and sovereign dominion. Truly, Yahweh is the greatest king. And he is worthy simply on that basis of all honor, obedience, and praise from his creation. And that includes you and me. So do you give that to Yahweh? Do you celebrate him with a life of holy worship? David the psalmist is already directing you to do so. Celebrate King Yahweh in a life of holy worship because, number one, he owns and rules all. But we get a second reason to celebrate King Yahweh in the next verses, verses 3 to 6. Number two, King Yahweh dwells with the holy. King Yahweh dwells with the holy. Look at verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of Yahweh, and who may stand in his holy place? These two lines are really two versions of the same critical question. Who is worthy to dwell with Yahweh? Line one here talks about going up to the hill or mountain. It's the same word in Hebrew. Going up to the hill or mountain of Yahweh. And line two talks about standing before him in his holy or set-apart place. Considering the greatness of Yahweh's kingship, considering that he is the holy I am, who is allowed to do these things? The question, of course, had practical implications for the original setting. In David's day, after the Ark of God, where God manifests his presence, it's brought into Jerusalem. It's transported to Mount Zion. Who's allowed to be near that? But the question is, in fact, timeless and relevant to all of us who are listening here today. Who may present acceptable worship to Yahweh? And who is allowed to live and remain where he is, whether on earth or in heaven? David doesn't leave us in suspense too long. He gives us the answer immediately in verse 4. Look there. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. The three lines of verse 4 declare a single truth in two opposite ways. Namely, only the holy may dwell with Yahweh. According to verse 4, the acceptable person, the worthy person, he must first have clean hands, which has nothing to do with hand washing. This is to say, his outward actions and speech must be totally blameless, perfect. He must also have a pure heart. His thoughts, his desires, his motivations, they must be completely right and good. All the time. Negatively speaking, he must be one who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, which is to say, 
His trust and affections do not go toward anything that is evil, false, or useless. Compare the first line of Psalm 25. You can probably see it on your same page where David talks about only lifting up his soul to Yahweh in trust. And then on the outside, negatively speaking, the worthy person must be one who has not sworn deceitfully. He has not lied or sworn falsely at all to take advantage of another person. Now, this is a short list, but the summaries provided and the representative actions provided, they're actually pretty comprehensive. To dwell with Yahweh and to present Him with acceptable worship, positively, you must be perfectly holy inside and out, blameless toward God and others. And negatively, you must not believe or act towards God or others in any way that is false. And by the way, we see similar descriptions of the worthy person, the person worthy to dwell with Yahweh in Psalm 15 and Isaiah 33, verses 14 to 16. Now, the reward for the one who proves himself worthy is precious. If you just peek at verse 5, we see that God will bestow on such a one blessing and righteousness. We've got to hit the brakes here for a second. We've got to ask ourselves, wait, do I meet God's standard? Am I worthy to ascend God's mountain and stand in his holy presence? Now, you might be inclined to say, eh, I don't know about perfectly holy, but is pretty good enough? Well, in answer, let's consider what happened with the transport of God's ark to Jerusalem. This is given to us in the history books of the Old Testament. According to 1 Samuel 4, Israel lost God's ark when they tried to use it like a good luck charm to win a battle against the Philistines, even though the Israelites were still seeking idols and sins. They thought they could bring the ark and win the battle that way, but it didn't work. Israel ended up getting slaughtered in battle, and the ark was captured by the Philistines. Then, in 1 Samuel 5 and 6, the Philistines tried to place Yahweh alongside their other gods, the ark, Yahweh. But, as a result, God smote the Philistines in various cities with deadly tumors until they gave the ark back to Israel. And then very poignantly, in 1 Samuel 6, verses 19 to 20, after the ark had been returned to Israel at the city of Beth Shemesh, which is a Levitical city, we hear that God killed 50,070 Israelites because they tried to look inside the ark. Now, there's some debate as to whether that number is legitimate. Was it 50,070 or just 70? But regardless, understand, God killed celebrating Israelites, worshiping Israelites, Israelites who were so happy and praising because the ark had been returned because they broke his law and they tried to touch and look inside the ark. And you know what the people of Israel asked in 1 Samuel 6.20 after witnessing God's holy wrath in this way? Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? That sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
The ark then remained at Kiriath-Jarim, which was a city of Gibeonites, non-Israelites, for decades. And then King David attempted to bring the ark up to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. And again, we have this celebratory event. It's triumphant. People are praising God, worshiping God. Except David is transporting God's ark by a cart instead of, as the law required, by the hands of Levitical priests, or the, the, the Levites, rather. And do you know what happened? When the oxen stumbled, and one of the attendants, well-meaning Uzzah, put out his hand to stabilize the ark and prevent it from falling, what a nice thing to do. God immediately struck Uzzah dead for Uzzah's irreverence. When David saw this, he first became angry. I'm sure he was embarrassed, but then he feared. And he said in 2 Samuel 6, 9, How can the ark of Yahweh come to me? It's a similar response. It's only later in 2 Samuel 6 when David brings up the ark exactly as God's law prescribed. Even going over the top, he's offering sacrifices like every few feet that the ark moves. It's only then that David was able to bring the ark successfully into Jerusalem without anyone dying. Now, I bring out this short history of God's ark to give you a clear picture of what God considers acceptable. Pretty good. Well, not cut it with God. I tried my best. Well, not cut it with God. God, you know my heart, my motivation. That's not going to cut it with God either. God is Yahweh. He is a holy God who will not accept anything except absolute, total perfection. Holiness that is the same as his own. He said this much to Israel. Be holy, for I am holy. You must be totally clean, totally pure, totally free of falsehood and heart and life if you are to stand in his presence. Any failure to keep his law, and even one part will not result in blessing, but cursing. As Deuteronomy 27.26 says, Deuteronomy 27.26, Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. So, one accurate answer to the question of Psalm 24.3, who may ascend God's hill and stand in his presence, is no one. Nobody's worthy. There is none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.10 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Isaiah 64.6 The sad truth is, on your own and on my own, we have no way into the holy presence of God. We are banished. We are locked out of his blessing and doomed under a curse to punishment. But there is another accurate answer to verse 3's question. Because after all, consider, God's ark did eventually make its way to Jerusalem. 
God did dwell with the people who were not perfectly holy, but they weren't consumed, and he did bless them. How? Well, not by their perfect adherence to God's law, but by faith and by substitutionary sacrifice. Because remember, God included in his law a system of sacrifice. The sacrifice of a blameless animal as a provision to cover, even forgive, sin. Now, not that animals have any power on their own to bring about God's forgiveness. Hebrews 10.4 is quite clear about that. Sacrificing a sheep or a bull, that doesn't change really anything. But they were accepted by God because of what they pictured. An ultimate provision an ultimate sacrifice, an ultimate covering that would come in the future. And who or what was that sacrifice or that covering? Well, the rest of Scripture reveals it was King Yahweh himself. When Yahweh came into the world as the man Jesus, he perfectly fulfilled the requirements of Psalm 24, 4. He had clean hands. And a pure heart. He didn't lift up his soul to falsehood. And he didn't deal with anyone falsely. And so he, and he alone, was worthy to dwell in Yahweh's presence and inherit his blessing. This is a second correct answer to Psalm 24.3. Who is worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord? It is only Jesus. Only Jesus is worthy. But then Jesus did something magnificent. And this is according to something we call the gospel, the good news. He handed himself over to die on a cross and suffer the very punishment and curse that is due us, all who believe in Jesus, instead. King Yahweh, understand, King Yahweh gave himself up as a substitutionary sacrifice to Yahweh the perfect one dying for imperfect sinners. And in so doing, he made a great exchange. He gave them his perfect record, the clean hands and the pure heart. This was given to believing sinners. And he took from them and paid off once and for all all their sin. Even the eternal punishment of hell, he paid it off once and for all at the cross. And the sacrifice was accepted because three days later, he rose from the dead. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, that's God, made him, that's also God, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So then, for those who have faith in Yahweh, like Abraham did, Genesis 15, 6. And more specifically, those who have faith in Jesus, Romans 10, 9 to 10, and in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, they are counted righteous before God. They are made acceptable, not by their own works, but by the once and for all accomplished work of Christ on their behalf. So a third accurate answer to Psalm 24.3, who is worthy to go into the hill of the Lord? The answer is only those who believe in Jesus. 
only those who are found in Jesus. They will ascend the hill of the Lord. They will stand in his presence, and they will experience experience Yahweh's blessing. Mind you, though, such saving faith is not shallow. It is paired with repentance, so that the believer no longer pursues sin or idols or some other treasure besides God. He He fundamentally pursues God and God's righteousness. A believer does not add to his salvation, does not complete it. He doesn't complete what Jesus started by his own good deeds. No. Instead, as a result of salvation, as a result of the faith that has saved him once and for all, he seeks the Lord's face in holy worship. It's not the root of his salvation, it is the fruit of it. And this corresponds to exactly what Hebrews 12.14 commands. Hebrews 12.14 says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, that is holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So it's almost like we come full circle in Psalm 24, 3 and 4, but not quite. It's not as if anyone can be holy enough, good enough on his own to enter into God's presence. The only ones who are acceptable are those who come on the basis of faith in God's provision, Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, those who do come by faith will be characterized by holy lives, cleanness of hands, purity of heart, not lifting up soul to falsehood, not dealing falsely with others. Only then are their lives and their worship acceptable to Yahweh. Understand what I'm saying? Let me ask you all who are listening today, do you believe in Jesus, Yahweh Jesus, to be your saving substitute? Accomplished it all on your behalf. You have nothing to add, nothing to contribute, except the sin that made your salvation necessary. Do you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And if you say yes, do you show it in the way that you live your life? Do you pursue Yahweh in holy worship? Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. This is the, the doom of all those who think they can be saved by their works. But James 2.17 says that faith without works, without a life of holiness the coming, coming from the faith, it is fake and dead. Faith that doesn't produce a life of holiness is fake and dead. That kind of faith will not bring one into the presence of Yahweh. Now, I spent a lot of time explaining verses 3 and 4 because I think that's necessary for us to appropriately appreciate verses 5 and 6. Let's now look at verse 5. What can those who walk by faith in Christ in the pursuit of holiness expect from God? Verse 5. 
he shall receive a blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Two rewards mentioned here. First, the worthy person will receive a blessing from Yahweh. Literally, he will lift up a blessing. So there's a play on words with what came before in verse 4. If you don't lift up your soul to falsehood, you will lift up a blessing from Yahweh. What is more precious? What is more valuable than to be blessed by the holy and all-powerful king of the universe? The phrase, a blessing, may seem small and insignificant all by itself, but consider what's contained in that little phrase. The rest of Scripture informs us in this. To receive a blessing from Yahweh is to receive an extravagant promise from the king himself of protection, of deliverance, of preservation, of healing, of empowerment, of prosperity, of favor, of exaltation, of peace, and of joy. To the blessed, Yahweh pours out abundant life now and forever. Even the trials of this world, the persecutions that come with following Jesus, and the hurts that come by the sins of others against us. For the one who's blessed in Yahweh, he bends all of those to the good of the one who he has so blessed. And those blessed this way by King Yahweh can never have their blessing taken away. Is that not a treasure? It's not only blessing. Notice it's also, verse 5 says, righteousness. You shall receive righteousness. That is, God will bestow a pronouncement of blamelessness, uprightness on this holy seeker. And this is what we so desperately need, isn't it? Because we are not righteous on our own. Through Christ, presented to Yahweh, through the salvation work of Yahweh, we are pronounced, we are counted righteous positionally holy. After all, notice the title for God given at the end of verse 5. He's called the God of his salvation. The word for God, it's Elohim. It emphasizes God's power. And it's linked here with God's power to save and rescue. In Christ, our mighty God not only blesses us with frequent temporal rescue in this life, but he also rescues us once for all spiritually from his just wrath and will one day rescue us eternally, save us to dwell with him forever. This is what the one brought into God's presence receives, blessing and righteousness. So what I to be the response of God's people to such a mighty king who not only blesses, but himself makes it possible for we, his people, to actually be there, to go up and dwell in his presence. Will we get the answer in verse 6? Verse 6. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob response that David models for us in verse 6 is to proclaim that he and his generation of Israelites will be the ones who truly seek God, even the face of God. 
And that expression, God's face, is not an idle one. If you compare it with other scriptures, you see that God's face is often associated in the Bible with glory, with beauty, with favor, with prosperity, with life. How appropriate that the greatest blessings that we can receive emanate from God's very face. It's not that God has blessings. He is blessing in himself. David, in essence, is telling God, Yahweh, we are seeking intimate relationship with you because you, in yourself, are the source of all true life, joy, and blessing. Now, can your heart say amen to that? Will you also declare to God that you are part of the generation that will seek Yahweh's face? Note here the reference to Jacob at the end. This is kind of a funny thing in the text. Some translators infer from the context and the sense of this verse that the sentence originally read, O God of Jacob. In fact, if you're reading in the ESV, the NIV, that's the way the text reads. But if you have the New American Standard or the King James Version or the Legacy Standard Bible, the Hebrew text of verse 6 is reflected in a very abrupt ending. Seek your face, Jacob. There's some words in italics that they give you the sense of it. Seek your face, even Jacob, or as Jacob. It is definitely abrupt in the Hebrew, but it seems the more difficult reading is probably the more original reading. Probably does end with just Jacob. The sense would appear to be David identifies the generation of worshipers that he's part of that are going to seek Yahweh as Jacob, which is another name for Israel. He's saying we are the true Israel, the Israel of Israel, you could say. But why does he call them Jacob and not Israel? Well, perhaps David wants to bring to mind the patriarch Jacob's own experience with God's face and God's blessing. Do you remember this? Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with the angel of Yahweh. And what did Jacob say as he was wrestling? The angel of Yahweh says to him, and the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh, by the way, let me go. The dawn has come. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until what? Until you bless me. How did Yahweh respond? He did bless Jacob. And when Jacob later realized what happened, Jacob said to himself in amazement, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been preserved. So it would seem that David is bringing all this to mind and by that illusion, urging us, as he urged the people of Israel in his own day, to seek Yahweh's face like Jacob and to not let go until Yahweh gives his blessing. It's not a mercenary thing. That's a devotion thing. If Yahweh really is the source of all blessing, then you must cling to him like Jacob did. So this is the second reason to celebrate King Yahweh in a life, a whole life of holy worship. Yahweh dwells with the holy. That should sober you in one sense. You cannot claim a place with God while you walk in sin. But in another sense, when armed with a true fear of God, the beginning of wisdom, when 
also armed with faith in Christ. This truth should cause you to celebrate because you know God has made a way for you to dwell as a saint, as a holy one in his presence. He did the impossible for you. You are saved. You are forever brought near to a holy God. You will be blessed. You have received righteousness from the God of your salvation. He is pleased to receive your worship and to bring you where he is. The final reason given to us is in verses 7 to 10. And as you're going to see in a moment, it is the most exuberant. It's like a crescendo of emotion in this passage. We've heard that King Yahweh owns and rules all. King Yahweh also dwells with the holy. But the third reason we should celebrate him in a life of holy worship is number three. King Yahweh is coming in glory. King Yahweh is coming in glory. Look at the first part of verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. I'll read the last part too. That the king of glory may come in. What's happening here? This, in literary terms, is called an apostrophe. Now, I'm not talking about the quotation mark. This is a speech towards an absent person or to a personified object. It's figurative language. David is giving commands to the very gates and doors of the city as if they could comply. By these Figurative words. David is poetically expressing his excitement, his anticipation, his desire to get things ready for the king's imminent arrival. David calls to the entrances, lift up your heads, which is an intriguing command for several reasons. One, this is the third time in this psalm we see the phrase lifted up. I'm seeing a theme here. Two, to lift up one's head is also an idiom in Hebrew, which means to regain hope or to gain confidence or to be restored to honor. And three, gates don't have heads. What's David talking about? Well, David says further to these city entrances, be lifted up, O ancient doors. So not just the heads of the gates, but the whole doors are supposed to be lifted up? And that's interesting too, because ancient gates didn't open upwards, they open inwards, normally. And David calls these doors ancient. That's probably not a reference to the oldness of the wood itself, the reinforced wood of these gate doors, gates slash doors, but probably to the stony entryways into which the, the doors were placed. I mean, those usually have been around for a while, so they could be characterized as ancient. But why this double call to lift up? Well, line three tells us. Line 3 of verse 7, that the king of glory may come in. Mm, there it is. David says that these doors need to be lifted up and even taken off to make room for the king's coming. David exclaims, the glorious king is arriving soon. We've got to enlarge these gates. We need more headroom on these gates. In fact, scratch that. Just pull out the entire door. Blow open the whole entrance that the king of glory may come in. Question of verse 8 naturally follows. Verse 8. Who is the king of glory? Yahweh strong and mighty. Yahweh mighty in battle. David answers the question of identity immediately and emphatically. 
who's the king of glory? Who's the glorious king? Why, it's Yahweh. It's the great king I've been talking about this entire psalm. But notice David describes Yahweh in clear warrior terms. And he repeats himself for emphasis. Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, the mighty one in battle. Say, oh, what's with this warrior stuff? Well, as a warrior himself, David had seen firsthand how God had fought mightily for Israel. God promised to do this, and he did this many times. David also knew that Yahweh would keep fighting for his people until ultimate salvation was accomplished. Yahweh is a warrior. He is strong and mighty, just as David says. So with verses 7 and 8 together, David is proclaiming, King Yahweh is coming. Quick, we need to enlarge the entrances for such a glorious conquering hero. Besides, with such a mighty, victorious king, who needs protective gates anymore anyways? Tear him down and let the king of glory come in. Well, as I said, this is figurative language. David is not actually calling down for the gates of Jerusalem to be torn down. But figuratively he is, because King Yahweh is that great. And then, just for extra celebration, extra emphasis, David repeats his call to the gates and the answer with slight variation in verses 9 and 10. Look at those. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory. You notice the slight differences in the second version of the, the call and response. When answering the question, who is he? David says the second time that this is Yahweh of hosts. You heard that title actually in the reading earlier in the service. Yahweh of hosts can also be translated Yahweh of armies. He's got whole hosts, whole armies behind him. This is a common title for God in the Old Testament, and it emphasizes his power, his faithful power even, to deliver. And then David is very emphatic with a closing statement. He says, he, he himself, Yahweh, is the king of glory. Notice, David doesn't identify himself as the king of glory, though David was a pretty majestic and victorious king. David knew that whatever he had, even his great victories, where do they come from? King Yahweh. He's the one who accomplished it all for David. Therefore, King Yahweh is the one who gets the glory. Yahweh of hosts. He, and only he, is the king of glory. And this is where the worship song ends. Did you notice that little word, Selah? So I'm imagining there's this big, triumphant, instrumental fanfare at the end as we've reached the climax of the song. And maybe they looped through it a couple of times. They sang this more than once. But you have that instrumentation right at the end. And if we imagine the original historical setting, or what was probably the original historical setting, we can see, we can almost hear the words of verses 7 and 10 being jubilantly sung back and forth by the choirs of Israel as the ark of God is brought into Jerusalem for the first time to reside there as God's special dwelling place. But you know what? The words of this psalm, and perhaps you've sensed this, they have a certain timelessness about them that makes them appropriate for really any time Yahweh of hosts comes into a special city in glorious victory. And here's where I'll mention to you a certain poignant historical fact 
in Israel, after the days of exile, after they'd been in Babylon and were brought back to the land, one thing that the Jews decided to do was to give each day of the week a psalm. They designated an official psalm of the day to be read or sung sometime during that day when that day of the week came around. And we see this practice mentioned in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament composed in the 3rd to 2nd centuries B.C. And we also see it testified in the Talmud. Later Jewish commentaries put together in A.D. 200 to 500. So this definitely happened, which means... By Jesus' day, the recitation or the singing of the psalm of the day was the practice of the Jews. Well, Psalm 24 was chosen as a psalm of the day. But guess which day? The first day of the week, Sunday. It was the practice of the Jews to sing or recite Psalm 24 on the first day of the week. Which means, when King Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, guess what song the Jews were singing? Psalm 24. And when Jesus, when King Jesus rose from the dead the following Sunday, guess what song the Jews were inadvertently singing on that day? Psalm 24. And furthermore, throughout history, Christians have often recited or sung Psalm 24 in commemoration of Jesus' salvation, victory, and ascension to heaven. But there will be at least one more day in which the people of God, including a newly repentant and saved Israel, will be singing Psalm 24. And that day will climax the appropriateness of this psalm. And what day is that? It is the day when Jesus returns. It's what we read about earlier in Zechariah 14. When Jesus, when King Jesus, King Yahweh Jesus comes back to the earth, it will be in glory, and he will destroy his enemies like a mighty warrior. He will rescue Jerusalem, and he will set up his perfectly just and righteous kingdom on the earth. And when the victorious king arrives in that day, Guess what? If you're in Christ, you're going to be with him. Did you notice that in Zechariah 14 earlier? It says, he and the host with him. Or I forget it was hosts or armies, but he came with people. Yahweh of hosts comes with hosts. If you're in Christ, you're going to be part of that. And so when you're with him and you show up to Jerusalem, I don't think you're going to have to worry about whether the city gate is large enough for King Jesus. Because if it ain't, guess what King Jesus is going to do? He's just going to lift it right out of the way. (laughs) Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, and let the King of glory come in. As we anticipate the return of Christ, This is an appropriate song for us to sing. If you believe in Jesus, if you are saved in Jesus, and if you show that by living a holy life in pursuit of the face of Yahweh Jesus, then celebrate today. Celebrate by even praying and singing this psalm. Think about it. When the Lord returns, 
How insignificant will be so many of the issues of our lives right now? The sins that we are tempted with, the passing treasures that seem to catch our interest and care so much, what will that be when the king of glory comes into his city? So let us do then, let us not only sing this psalm, but let us do what it instructs us to do. Because of God's universal rule, because of his merciful saving and dwelling with the saints, and because he will soon return in glory, let us put off sin and let us celebrate the Lord with lives of holy worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the King of glory. And you've given a glorious word even in this psalm. Oh Lord, we do want to see the gates lifted up. We do want to see you enter in. Yahweh of armies. Yahweh strong and mighty. You have shown yourself strong in so many ways. Not only in the physical deliverances recorded in the Bible. Not only in your provisions and rescues and the many experiences of our lives, but fundamentally in our salvation. You delivered us from sin and death, these mighty enemies that we could not conquer and that were going to ruin us. Jesus, you rescued, you fought, and you conquered so that we are saved and safe and we are going to dwell with you on your holy hill. But Lord, let us no longer walk in sin anymore. Well, let us not, well, let us do as your word says in the New Testament. Live lives worthy of the salvation calling with which you have been called. We can't do that without your strength. But if you are the mighty God and you promise us your strength, then we can do it. As we rely on you, as we have faith in you, we can say no to ungodliness. We can put away evil thoughts. We can forgive. We can love our enemies and those who mistreat us. And we can do good to all people, especially the household of the faith. So God, glorify yourself in doing that through us so that we may give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.